Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a real treat to have you here. Today's episode is going to be a journey into the world of textiles and publishing. To quote our guest, next to food, textiles are the most important material to the history of humanity. You can live without most things, but you can't live without textiles. Textiles can be used to make drinking vessels, shelter, clothing, nets for catching too. Textiles are vital for survival. I met our guest today on the Innovating for Growth programme at the BIPC in the British Library about six years ago and fell in love with her creation, a textile magazine. Not just any magazine, though, a visual feast of storytelling, aesthetic and authenticity. What started off as a one-off publication in 2004 became the bi-monthly independent magazine Salvage, The Fabric of Your Life. The world's leading textile magazine with a global readership of 75,000. The success and attraction to Selvage has seen the brand extend its offering to a monthly podcast, World Fair, virtual specialist workshops taught by experts from across the globe, textile tours, talks, chat rooms, and an online shop. You must check out their tote bags. Collaborations include Liberty and Anthropology, as well as the National Trust and V&A. The brand is currently celebrating its centenary publication with the iconic nonagenarian Iris Apfel on the front cover. So time to introduce our guest, Polly Leonard, founder of Selvage. Hello and welcome to H&P, Polly. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. It's lovely to have you here, Polly. It's a real treat. It really is. So, Polly, um, firstly, would you very briefly share with the listeners the definition of the word textile? I define textiles as any material that is pliable and penetrable. So you have to be able to bend it and you have to be able to stick a needle through it. So obviously clay in its wet form is pliable but when it's been fired, it, then it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't work as a textile. But I, I include things like um, willow and baskets, as well as what you'd ordinarily think of as cloth. That's really interesting. And I hope that hopefully explains it more to us because I, for one, am a novice. So to go back a bit, Polly, you began with your degree wanting to be a painter, but with your love of texture, ended up completing your degree in embroidery and weaving, followed by a master's in fine art. You then became a high school teacher and even, I think, considered being a headmistress. How did you evolve from teaching into becoming the founder of Selvage? I guess the turning point was having my son, Phoenix. He's now 21. I was at home looking after a baby, trying to find something to occupy my mind. And I started writing for other magazines. When you're writing for other magazines, you submit your text and you have no real power or input into how that article is produced. So at that point, I thought, hmm... Maybe there's an audience for the kind of things I'm interested in. And 
perhaps I could actually produce a magazine myself, something where I would have complete control over the images. It was the images that really kind of struck a chord with me. I think if you're writing about textiles, there's a real need to have beautiful, big images, full page images that draw the reader in to the article. So that, I suppose, is where it kind of started. And Polly, how did you get the funding for your first publication? How did it actually start? (laughs) Okay, so I then edited someone else's magazine for a couple of years. So I had a tiny bit of experience and I'd really got the bug by then. It's a it's a funny story. I uh, I didn't start I didn't start from a standing start. I'd been a bit of a textile geek probably for about 10 years. So I'd joined lots of committees, I'd been to lots of conferences, and I had a little network of people who who knew me. So I very amateurish produced an A4 typed sheet. It had a couple of pictures. And it said, you know, my name is Polly Leonard. I'm going to start a magazine. It's going to be very beautiful. Would you like a free copy? And I photocopied a huge pile of these. And I went up to Ali Pali, which is just close to where I live. And I handed these out at the Knitting and Stitching Show. And I got about 3,000 responses. So I took a loan out on my house and I produced one issue. And I sent this out to about 3,000 people on my mailing list for free. And inside the magazine was a subscription form. And I got enough subscribers from that first issue to print a second issue. And very slowly, it became a regular publication. So it probably took maybe two years until it became bi-monthly. I mean, that is such initiative to to the way that you went about it. Did the knitting and stitching show mind that you were handing out these flyers? Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm afraid I'm a ask forgiveness rather than permission person. So uh, no no one questioned me. So it was all good. I think that's how one sort of moves ahead, actually, isn't it? I'm the opposite of that. So I have to ask permission and therefore you get told no, no, no. Whereas if you just get on with it, someone might just give a wide berth thinking, okay, well, they're harmless. You know, we'll let them carry on. I'm very polite. (laughs) And uh, I always, you know, I always say please and thank you when I'm asking for things. And um, if you don't ask, you don't get, you know, the answer's always no. Absolutely. So how easy has it been to grow Selvage to the brand that it's become? I mean, with so many extensions that you now have on it, Polly. Um, So I think publishing has a very unique business model in that it's extremely expensive to generate the content of a magazine. So to produce, say, a thousand copies is extremely expensive. But to produce, to scale that up and produce 10,000 or 20,000 is relatively inexpensive proportionally. So getting that very first one, two, three, four issues, that was the real challenge. It's been slight, I mean, it's not been plain sailing, but once you, you get a critical mass with a publication, it does become slightly easier. What I think was very important is the magazine, first issue, you're right, was out in 2004. So I started planning in 2003. That was a really important 
point historically, I think. Lots of businesses started in that year. It was a point when the internet had just reached a critical mass. It was just big enough to support a niche public or a niche business like Selvage. Digital photography was in its infancy, which made it possible to design the magazine from my kitchen table. So those things really were in my favour. Selvage was publishing at that time was going through radical changes when advertising was already losing its grip on magazine revenue. Selvage was one of the first, if not the first, coffee table type magazine that had high production values and relied on subscriptions rather than advertising for the bulk of its revenue. Today, of course, everyone pays for everything on subscription. But back then, it was it was not common at all. So do you think you were sort of right time, right place with launching Selvage? Very much so. Very, very much so. I think if I'd waited another year, someone else would have done it. And perhaps if I'd tried a year earlier, I would have run out of money before I'd reached a wide enough audience. And have you had to have brought investment into the business at all? I haven't actually at all since that very first issue. I've just moved very slowly, having a lot of patience. uh, (laughs) And I haven't. Um, There's been lots of twists and turns and, you know, tricky moments but I haven't brought any investors in at all. I'm a little bit of a control freak, so that path just wouldn't be right for me. No, it's always tricky with investors. It it, it brings in a different spin for sure. You're, mm. you're, you're a clever lady not to have had to have brought those in. How do you feel about your arena becoming more and more digitalised? Did you ever envisage that it was going to be how it is nowadays? Right from day one, we produced a digital version of Selvage because the readership was worldwide and shipping is hugely expensive. I really thought that would be the future at that point. And in fact, it is still even today much smaller than I'd envisaged. That might be to do with the the content of the magazine. People who are interested in textiles are very interested in in tactile experiences. So the magazine has maintained its uh, core readership and people are still willing to pay what I believe is, you know, a a very high cost to have it shipped to the, uh, you know, all corners of the world. The other aspects of the business which have recently gone digital, such as the workshops, etc., that is a really, really positive thing for us because we can, say, have a block printing workshop taught by a block printer from Jaipur. I know, it's Uh, incredible. I mean, listeners, you've got to check this out, seriously. (laughs) And a student from Oaxaca in Mexico. And that's just quite a magical thing. I mean, the community that you've brought together, Polly, it must be, I mean, it must blow your mind away. You're bringing people together from all corners of the globe. It, it, it does, actually. And that, if you were to say, what's the highlight? Uh, and I would have to say, forging those relationships with people, textile enthusiasts from Cusco in Peru and Jaipur in India and Santa Fe in New Mexico. That, for me, has been the real highlight. 
Yeah, incredible. So I want to just um, touch on the world that we now live in, this pandemic world. Mm -hmm. How has the pandemic affected Selvage, not only with the magazine, but also the courses, the tours, the World Fair, which I think you and your team had spent two years planning? So the magazine, first of all, we had a bricks and mortar store, which had an office in the back from about 2007 to 2017. So at that point, we closed the store and the salvage team started working remotely. So we were perhaps ahead of the game Mm -hmm. a little bit uh, when the lockdowns began last year. We cancelled all of our distribution contracts which allowed us to reduce our print expenditure. So that has enabled us to continue publication uninterrupted throughout the entire pandemic so far, which is one of the things that I'm actually rather proud of. The content, of course, of the magazine has changed dramatically with no advertisers and no events and no exhibitions to promote it's kind of given us the opportunity to produce special issues and do a lot of different things that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do before. The events, we moved them straight onto Zoom. And after, you know, finding our way, you know, what works, what doesn't, we have to now do a lot more international shipping than we used to do. We ship material packs around the world. The World Fair, which is the most important thing that we've ever done, was and still is a hugely expensive venture. Um, If I look as a kind of overview, I think it's a real advantage to have been able to almost make our mistakes digitally rather than having to wait for the actual uh, live event where the mistakes might have cost us rather more. So although it's very sad, we've made the best of it and provided what has been a real lifeline for artisans around the world to you know, sustain their income through the pandemic. Do you think, Polly, that the changes that you've made are going to be long-term changes that you won't go back to how you were before? Yes, very much so. We won't go back to distributing through newsstands. It's it's something, a change that was going to happen. Um, I suppose the pandemic just gave us the courage to say, actually, we're not going to do that anymore. Advertising was already drifting off or just becoming something different. We do far more collaborations and partners with commercial companies than we used to do. So I think it's just changed. Do you ever struggle? I mean, I with the world of podcasting, it is content, content, content and <laughs> extracting content and rejigging it and everything else. I mean, Polly, you have a heck of a lot of content to produce. I know you have a team, I think, of around seven people. But do you ever struggle with content and do you find that you feel less creative in this pretty restrictive environment that we're having to cope with? I've always been a bit of an ideas person. I always say I have so many ideas, it gives me a headache. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the ideas come fairly quickly. We've just shifted our focus. We're doing all kinds of fun things with our online talks. We're doing a Pecha Kucha format, which is a Japanese format of 20 slides and 20 seconds. So it's a slight, you know, it's a slightly different 
kind of online lecture that hopefully will add a little bit of interest and excitement to an event that, you know, they can be awfully dull uh, Zoom lectures. So we, we yeah. try various ways to spice them up a bit. Have you noticed more more interest from people who are getting into, I know it's not necessarily crafts that you're doing, but have you found that you're getting more people from the pandemic and the way that interests have changed? We are very much so. That That's the biggest thing we've noticed uh, with our audience. Uh, so much so that we've launched uh, an initiative called the Selvage Winter of Making. As a new empty nester, at the beginning of September, I was facing, you know, what what was and still, you know, still is a very long, hard winter. Mm-hmm. So I felt we really needed to do something to support the mental health of our, our audience. And we have put together a program of downloadable projects and the workshops and the talks and the podcasts and the Instagram lives and a chat room where they can share their projects and just connect with each other. And I think making textiles, knitting or sewing or whatever it is, is a great stress reliever. And the more people we can encourage to have a go, the better. You are so on it, Polly, with the digitalization. I mean, I look at your website, I think, my God, this woman really knows what she's up to. And how do you fit it all in? You are, if listeners, have check out what Polly is up to. I know she has an amazing team too. But how do you fit in podcasts, Insta Lives, doing the, you know, the workshops, organising, all that st- writing? The, the magazine is the centre of everything we do. So the magazine has deadlines and all of the other activities we promote within the magazine. So I'm working at the moment on the May issue. The deadline for that is the middle of March. So by the middle of March, I and my entire team know that we have to have 12 workshops. I need an image and a date and a name and a title for the workshop by that deadline. So those, in a way, the magazine, the deadlines that the magazine has keeps everyone in the in the team focused. And you can't, you know, a magazine can't go to press with a blank page. So there's no choice. No, there isn't choice. Get on. <laughs> but um, Polly, do you think your teacher mindset has helped you with creating, you know, such an effective inspirational team with perhaps delegating and being very clear with directions uh, that's that's a very interesting question, actually. And when I was teacher training, some uh, some tutor said to me, uh, I was learning a technique called sprang, and the teacher was showing us. And I said, how how many times have you done this before? And she <laughs> said, I've done it loads and loads of times. Actually, she hadn't. She said, never, <laughs> never, never admit that you've never done it before, even if you know it'll work. Just convince your pupils that you've you've taught it a million times and it works every time. And then you'll bring them with you on your journey and, you know, they, you'll cope with all of the pitfalls along the way. So, you know, f- fake it till you make it. <laughs> That's very valuable <laughs> advice. What skill set do you think you've had to draw on to build and grow salvage? I'm very good at multitasking. I think teaching... Perhaps 
you develop the ability to know what might not work. So a, a magazine is like putting together a huge jigsaw. You know, I've got 30 articles and 300 images and 20 advertisers. And the jigsaw isn't finished until every one of those pieces are in place. So invariably, human nature, something doesn't work out. So I always have a plan B and probably a plan C and maybe during the pandemic, a plan Z. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do anticipate and plan for multiple realities because of those deadlines. So Polly, um, I want to ask you about sustainability, mm -hmm. but it looks as if you've already done quite a bit in the way that you seem to be printing less magazines and, and becoming more and more digitalised. Yes. So the magazine itself goes without saying, I think all publishing companies should, you know, we use sustainably um, paper from sustainably managed forests. We use compostable packaging. We use soy inks. We wow. don't print more than we need to. Uh, so we have very tight reins. And, you know, if we sell out, we sell out. And that's that. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing we're doing, which I suppose is our kind of mission statement, if there is such a thing, is promoting economically and environmentally sustainable alternatives to fast fashion. For me, my ambition, my raison d'etre, if you like, is to inspire our readers about the variety of fibres that the world has given us. So I love the crispness of cotton, the stiffness of linen, the rustle of silk, the downy texture of mohair, all of those incredible fibres. And within those fibres are woven the history of humanity. No resource has more diversity. Uh, I love every country's textile tradition. Whoever you are, wherever you are, we always say that you, even if you don't know it, even if you're not aware of it, Cloth is inextricably linked to your cultural identity and your heritage. And by exploring that history, we are laying the history of humanity before you, before our readers. From the linen that was woven into the sails that were blown by the, uh, the trade winds and started global trade to the smart textiles we use today. So that is really our mission. But the counter side to that is that textiles are also at the forefront of climate change. The production of textiles is so bound up with the inequalities that plague our society. It's embarrassing for me, someone who loves textiles, to know that this has happened in my lifetime. And I suppose it's my life's work to introduce our audience to those sustainable alternatives to fast fashion. So we're, we're much more about the carrot than the stick. We don't tend not to show pictures of children working in factories, but instead show the work of artisans producing sustainable products. Yeah, really important. Mm. Polly, what has challenged you most so far and what have you learnt from the challenge? <laughs> OK, I suppose when I started, subscriptions weren't really a business model that was very widely used. And I tried and failed several times to develop some kind of subscription management system. Very, very badly. Not, none of them worked. 
Uh, and I just had to, I think, be patient until technology caught up. We now have a very inexpensive off-the-peg subscription system that works like a dream. So maybe patience is something I learned from that experience. Yeah, dreaded that dreaded word, <laughs> patience. We yeah. will be addressing that as well later on <laughs> in the podcast. Polly, do you have an inner critic, that sort of negative chit-chat that goes on saying you should, shouldn't, you know, all that sort of thing? I suppose I do. And I suppose it pushes me to don't stand still, keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it sort of nudges you? Yes. Yeah. Sounds very positive one then. What do you think that you have learnt about yourself having your business? (laughs) I'm a little bit obsessive very focused, single-minded. I'm not as forgiving as I perhaps should be. I tend not to compromise. So perhaps I'm not the easiest person to uh, to be around. I have high standards and I expect my team to have the same standards. Has anything ever slipped by you in life that you regret? Not business-wise. I would have loved a third child, but, you know... That just didn't happen. And you've got two lovely, a, a son and two. a daughter, have you? A son and a daughter, yes. Yeah. So, Polly, have you ever had any serendipitous moments? Right in the early days, I think issue maybe three, the wife of the CEO of Barnes & Noble uh, found a copy of Selvage. And from that, we got huge orders for about a decade, so much so that we were printing half of the print run in the US. Wow. Then the financial crash happened and the exchange rate flipped and that just wasn't financially viable anymore. So we don't even, we're not even stocked now in Barnes and Nobles, the very few stores that are left. Most of the that huge network across the US has closed down, but um that was a really great thing for a long time. Yeah, and opened huge doors. Yes, so yeah, yeah. we're heading to the very exciting part of the show where we tuck into our chocolate. Oh. <laughs> but but before, Polly, there's a quick fire round. Okay. Optimist or pessimist? Optimist, definitely. Introvert, extrovert or ambivert? Introvert, definitely. <laughs> perfectionist or non-perfectionist? Uh, in my personal life, I'm quite casual. But professionally, an absolute perfectionist. Early bird or night owl? Ah, now that's that's interesting. I used to very much be an early bird, but the pandemic, I've actually been finding it quite hard to sleep, so I've become a bit of a night owl. Yeah, it's interesting how the pandemic has flipped the sleeping system on its head. Yes. Sometimes one can get up really early and feel totally alert at sort of five in the morning, and other times you can stay up really late, but you want to get up later. Yes, yeah. I suppose it's losing, you slightly lose sanity. Your, your, fork, your sanity, yes, and your, your kind of daily routine gets a bit skewed. Yeah, it gets a bit mundane and monotonous, yeah. or mine does. So grab your chocolate, Polly, and tell the right. listeners why we are tucking into Rococo's Milk Chocolate Rose Thins. What's the story behind this choice, okay. Polly? So... I am a sucker for a nice design and I just love their packaging. So yep. it's a winner before I've even opened. It's a winner. Uh, and I, so I love the, I don't know, 18th century 
monochrome prints of chocolate making equipment. So there's a little bit of lovely history there. Mm -hmm. I'm not a connoisseur. I'm not a foodie. So I would always go for milk chocolate rather than a dark, which mm -hmm. probably isn't very sophisticated. And I just quite like that floral flavour. It's kind of like a bit old ladyish, but um, very good for you, Rose. In the in the yeah. aromatherapy world, oh. I I used to do a rose chocolate bar, and I when I first did it, I thought, wow, this is like swallowing a bar of soap. But I got more and more into it, and now I love rose chocolate. But rose is a really nurturing oil it's it's and it's sort of cheap mate is geranium so if you can't afford rose geranium is fantastic oh. and it, it's very feminine oil it's sort of a golden oil it's very special these are delicious and i've never tried them before and they're so thin yes they're wonderful i love the thinness and polly has got a podcast on roses the smell of isn't it the smell yes. of roses it so is if, yes if anyone listening wants a rose hit Check out Polly's mm. podcast, which is Salvage Podcast. Okay, back to work, Polly. You got okay. <laughs> no, no time to finish. What are your thoughts on the word success and failure? Well, I think success is a bit of a flat emotion. Doesn't really lead anywhere. Failure for me is a much more productive thing because... You learn so much more from failure. You learn enough to take you to the next stage, to move on to the next thing. I think James Dyson, didn't he make something like 5,000 prototypes before he got his vacuum cleaner right? So I don't think of failure as a negative. I think of it as, well, that's given me the experience to move on to do the next thing. And what do you mean by flat, Polly, when you define um, success as flat? If you go right back to, so my daughter just has gone off to university. So they've gone, both of the kids have gone through that, you know, GCSE and A-level thing. And they work, work and work and work really, really hard. And then you get the grades you want. And then what? It's just. Yeah, you're right. Fine. What next? And the emotion for, I suppose, not getting what the grades you want or the, the thing in business you want that can give you drive to move you to the next thing can almost be the best thing you know you do is to you know have something that doesn't work and I suppose a magazine I'm never satisfied you know I've done a hundred issues and they've I haven't done a perfect issue yet always something goes wrong and that gives me the energy or drive to go on and produce the next one yeah, although I think we need successes to push us through, to carry us through the failures, don't we, as a sort of benchmark, maybe, that we think, oh, I succeeded in that, and therefore if I've succeeded in that, I'm going to, I failed in this, but I'm going to succeed again. Yes, yes. Possibly. Yeah. Now into your well-being, Polly. How... <laughs> I'm not so good at this. <laughs> how important is incorporating well-being into your day, and do you manage to achieve it? Well-being can be mental well-being, physical, spiritual, you know, whatever aspect you see it as. It's, it's hugely important. And I, um, I admit to being not very good at it. And just thank God I have my dog who absolutely saves me. She insists on a long walk every day. And <laughs> what type of dog? What mate? She's, she's a Cocker Spaniel. 
That's sweet. Uh, so, you know, that gets me out every day, gets me some exercise. And come kind of six o'clock in the evening, she's, she, you know, comes and, and says, you know, turn off the computer, enough now. Wow, she sounds a fantastic companion. <laughs> we are very grateful for her, yes. Have you changed the way that you look after yourself over the years, do you think? I have taken up knitting, which is wonderful as a kind of stress reliever, especially if you're working on a, a complicated pattern, you really need to concentrate. And you know, if you're concentrating on your knitting, you can't worry. So I knit and I try to swim most days, although not at the moment. Outdoors or indoors? Are you into um, uh, <laughs> wild, wild swimming in the ice? Well, I walk with, with my dog past uh, Hampstead Heath Ladies Pond and look very enviously at the very hardy women who seem to me to have a great community. And I long to be brave enough to, uh, to join them, but I'm afraid I'm a pool person. <laughs> So would you say that the knitting is the way that you take time out? Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And do you knit with a purpose or are you just knitting randomly? I make socks because they're fairly quick-ish and there's lots of different techniques you can fit into quite a small thing. And it's very helpful to have something that that grows, that you make progress, even if you don't do very much. Every, you know, every row, you're, you know, something is growing and, and you will have something at the end of it. I mean, isn't progress important? Even if it's a small step, it's like yes. someone just sort of emailed. I had a lovely person who emailed me and said that they'd really enjoyed an episode that, that they'd listened to. And Polly, it just made me think, yes, mm. you know, it's that, it's that sort of recognition, those small little steps that just get you further forward. Yes, yes, absolutely. Do you ever suffer from stress? And if you do, how do you find it affects you physically, mentally, spiritually? I do suffer from stress. Sometimes there are just too many things and it's very difficult to make decisions. You, you know, I make mistakes, but I've often find the best way to get through it is actually just to work through it. I'm very focused and very good at, you know, I could concentrate for England. So I try to, you know, turn the phone off, just sit for, you know, a few hours and complete one task. And then at least I feel as though I've accomplished something and there's one less thing on the to-do list and you feel a little bit better. Do you find that you ever struggle with sleep? And if you do, what do you do? I do, <laughs> probably due to the menopause, but I'm a great planner. So I strategize. I strategize all night. I plan the next issue and then the one after that and the one after that. So then you can spend the next day in bed, <laughs> catch up on sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Polly, what music makes you feel good? And what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? Uh, so I, I grew up in the north and I have a lifelong uh, affection for America. So Northern Soul is my kind of go-to music. I love that period, the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, wonderful dance music for dance around your kitchen. Which we all need to be doing. And what, do. what, <laughs> what about the book? The God of Small Things 
by Anurada Roy is yeah. probably my number one. But I'm reading at the moment Claire Wilcox's memoir, Patchwork, mm-hmm. A Life Amongst Clothes, which is just very sweet and beautifully written. She is the curator of textiles at the V&A. And oh, wow. it's just a lovely personal... And it's written in very short chunks. So it's just, you know, a couple so of those manageable. before you go to sleep. Very manageable, yeah, yeah. Polly, what advice would you give to people who are thinking of setting up their own business, possibly in publishing or to do around textiles? I used to mentor textile businesses and I would always encourage people to fail fast. Now, what I mean by that is uh, get your product out to market as quickly and cheaply as possible. I think most businesses fail because... You know, they run out of money. They run out of money before Mm -hmm. they can develop their products enough. The chances are your first idea isn't going to work, Mm -hmm. but you're going to learn something from getting that out to the market to then adjust and modify. So get it out there as quickly and cheaply as possible. Such sound advice. Closing the sort of podcast, what are your or where have you had to have had hope? And also patience, if you can share an example with our lovely listeners. Can I do patience first? Uh, my world, yes. the World Fair. So this mm. has been a dream for two and a half years. And it's probably going to be, you know, another year and a half before we actually see a physical thing. So that's a great lesson in patience. And hope is... Every single issue, you just, you know, hope the articles will come in and hope the pictures will be good and hope you can pull something together. And where can our listeners find out more about you, um, hear the latest? You know, where do they find the, the your Instagram is to die for? I mean, that is a work of art in itself. Thank you very much. That's very kind. I mean, so the website, everything, the website connects to everything. So www.selvedge.org. Selvedge, by the way, it's the edge of a piece of cloth. So it's the, the part of the cloth that holds it all together, stops it falling apart. And historically, printed textiles always had the designer's name on the, the edge, the selvedge. How interesting. I remember I used to, um, I did needlework O-level. I really enjoyed uh-huh. um, needlework. And I, I, I sort of missed that side. But I remember them drumming home about the salvage. Don't cut this, you know, you weren't <laughs> cut the salvage off because that was the sort of route to yes. creating yeah. your outfit. Polly, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It has been wonderful to chat to you. It's been far too long and I have learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will have learned loads too. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been super and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Amelia. Before I go, it's time for my recommendation, which today is a song and also a quote for this episode. So my recommendation is a song that just fills my soul with sparkle. It is Feeling Good by Nina Simone. Switch it on, turn the volume up if you can. I promise you it will really just accelerate you into a different zone from worries and fears. And the quote is from the Dalai Lama. To conquer oneself is a greater victory than to conquer thousands in a battle. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. 
Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it'd be truly fab if you could rate and review it on Apple or better still share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quote, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Open Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope. <laughs>